Welcome to Case by Case, a podcast put together by Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain of Zyla Floyd Zadkovich. Welcome, Callum. Thank you, Luke. Another another good case today. I've got to say, I I don't think I've been as excited about doing one of these um, these case by case uh, podcast episodes as I have been today. <laughs> it's a it's an interesting case. There there are so many different issues in this case, and the subject matter is um, quite satisfying. <laughs> you could say that it, it's got absolutely everything. We yeah. we start with a Ferrari two fifty GTO from this from the sixties, without its gearbox. I think that's just a classic. How it's a forty four million dollars sale of a Ferrari with, well, I think it's got a substitute gearbox or it drives, but its original one is not in the car. Yeah, the dispute is over peanuts. Uh, actually, you know, when you break it down, the parties were so close um, when this all kind of fell apart on a $44 million deal. Uh, they were really only arguing over, you know, next to nothing. Yeah, but, but they, so, so much, there's so much bad blood. Clearly, oh, it's, there's so it's much incredible. bad blood between these two parties. It's incredible. You know what? The only thing about this case, that, that, and it came right at the end, that made me not like the case so much was where I found out that the seller was not located where the Ferrari actually was. And this is probably massive naivety because I don't own any $44 million cars. But the Ferrari itself was kept at the, at, in, in, in Ferrari in Italy. And the, the previous owner was obviously living in America or wherever. So it was just a collectible to him. There was this beautiful car and he's not, presumably not even driving it. Yeah, I, I don't. Th- I, I'm not going to profess to know as much about um, fast cars as our, our colleague Howard Quinlevin. Yeah. Um, but I, I do know that um, that's not uncommon, uh, and that actually antique cars are, are kept in you know pristine, um, uh, almost museums, like a you know well, fi- exactly. fine fine artwork, um, and. Uh, they're bought as collectibles, as investments, um, and of course by you know car lovers. Um, but uh, yeah, they're not they're not always stuck in a container and shipped around the world um, on exactly on, on, on subsequent purchases. But the, but the case, like the legal side of the case, has everything as well. Like the, I'm resisting putting too many kind of driving puns into this podcast. But there's more procedural twists and turns than a Monte Carlo racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, and there's, it's got it's got both sides too. It's got the legal side, and then it's got the procedural side. So you've got th- these different points of procedural law. You've got these different points of contract law. Crucially, the one of the key points of contract law, I was delighted to see, as has always been the case since basically contract law one hundred and one turned on looking at uh, shipping decisions, um, which basically drives English contract law. No, no driving pun intended there, um, but. It's got everything, like you say. There are so many issues to unpack in this case. Yeah, and you've got uh, one of our our favourite Lord Justices, males, um, with a, a typically you know, beautiful, if I can say, judgment. Um, also, yeah. in the way that he he just 
you know, sets the, the party straight on mediation and, and how this just should not have got to where it, um, where it did. He obviously on costs, which we'll come on to probably right at the end, um, deals with, you know, who was more responsible or culpable for um, not adhering to the recommendations by Lord Justice Males to, to go off and mediate this dispute um, in the, the, the permission uh, granting but it, 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 yeah, it's just, it's got everything. I, I read it and, and my takeaway from this decision was uh, this is one of those cases that should form the bedrock of um, uh, a day one session um, at law school or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the kind of fact pattern that will just be in uh, law students' exam questions for years to come. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, with all that said, I think um, it's fair to say, strap yourselves in, put on your (laughs) (laughs) seatbelts, buckle up, exactly, put your driving gloves on, helmets on, (laughs) because we're about to drop drop the clutch on this one and let's get it going. All right, Callum, open us up with some some, uh, facts. Okay, so as briefly as I can, there are two, two parties involved. Well, there are two principal parties involved, the seller and the buyer. The buyer is a company called Gregor Fiskin Limited, uh, per- a, a, sale, a, a seller or a vendor of, of collectible cars. And the seller is Bernard Carl, uh, who was the previous owner and the owner of the car uh, at the time that it, this sale was made. And the sale was for a Ferrari 250 GTO, which... I, in, if, if like me, you are not uh, massively into your cars, I strongly recommend Googling Ferrari 250 GTO. It's a thing of beauty. Although my, my colleague Howard assures me that uh, there are many nicer Porsches in this world. Um, and it's, it was sold for $44 million. A nice little vignette that, uh, that Lord Justice Mills leads off with is that uh, they were originally manufactured by Ferrari between 1962 and 64. Um, and when first built, they cost $18,000, and each owner had to be personally approved by Enzo Ferrari himself. <laughs> uh, and they now they now go for, it seems, tens of millions of dollars, with or without gearbox. Um, and the gearbox had been separated from the car, and there's a little bit about why that happened, um, but it seems that it basically the gearbox was, was at a garage owned by Mr. Bruce Canipa. Um, or Kenyepa, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, but he, it's, it, was, it was in California, and it seemed as though there was at least a suggestion that the gearbox had been stripped and stolen by a disgruntled employee of Mr. Bruce Kenyepa, um, who, who ran a garage in California. Um, and this entire case came down to the kind of repatriation of the gearbox, to to the original um, to 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 the rest of the car, um, and there was a contractual mechanism when when these two parties agreed the contract they they had agreed that the well they 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 they'd noted in the contract that the car did not include the gearbox and they had this contractual mechanism a relatively complicated contractual mechanism that set out the the different ways that the parties had kind of obligations relating to the gearbox. Um, and one of the obligations on the seller, uh, Mr. Mr. Carl, Bernard Carl, was to was to basically take use use his best efforts to try and find the gearbox. Um, 
And having found it, there was there was this obligation, or at least they, it, it later became contested, but there appeared to be this obligation um, on the buyer to pay an additional half a million dollars if the gearbox was found um, and made available to him. Yeah, so, so, so we had, just to recap, we had a... A, a, a sale of the Ferrari, this 1960s beautiful Ferrari, for $44 million. Um, and it was uh, clarified in this decision that the $44 million was consideration for the car and the gearbox, even though the gearbox was outside of the car. And because the gearbox was not actually in the possession of the seller it was with someone else and as you say perhaps with a disgruntled employee of that someone else um, there was this mechanism for retrieving the gearbox and if that was done there was a kicker of five hundred thousand dollars that would be paid by the buyer to the seller yeah exactly and the whole case the whole case turns on this five hundred dollars and this and finding the gearbox but it but it the gearbox is found quite quickly. They they find it with uh, with Mr. Bruce Kanyepa, and um, you think at that stage, and this is effectively uh, when we get onto procedures, this is the judge's point of procedure is you've got the gearbox. You know that you have to pay an extra half a million for the gearbox. You should have sorted this out. This should have been sorted out. But rather than being sorted out, you have this explosion of litigation where the gearbox. You know, first there are questions about whether. The the buyer it has an entitlement to um, to inspect the gearbox or to have the gearbox inspected. Then there are questions about where the gearbox has to be inspected and who has to come and inspect it and whether they need Ferrari expertise to go in and inspect the gearbox to make sure that it is the correct gearbox. And then you have questions about where the gearbox has to be delivered, whether it is simply turned over at the place where the gearbox currently is, or whether it has to be delivered to a particular location. And then you get into questions about whether or not the further payment of $500,000 is actually a requirement in order for the gearbox to be sent. Um, and then you got into even more questions about whether the contract even existed in the first place. Yeah, um, that, that's when it just got, it just got ridiculous <laughs> at the end It just got there. insane. Uh, yeah. Just pausing for a moment, um, when I went through this, this judgment and read the correspondence, um, you could kind of see, you know, the toing and froing over this and how... In commercial terms, one party may have a bit of a point. Um, and, you know, it, it, Mr. Carl had found the gearbox. Canapa didn't want to turn over the gearbox to Carl until he got paid and released from any issues, which I could understand that. Carl, instead of just paying the 25000 and then getting the 500000 from uh, the buyer, then gets into this stoush about, well, I want to be paid the money first, so then I'm not out of pocket to then pay on Mr. Canapa, the, the person who they secured the, the gearbox from. And this kind of toing and froing went back and forth over, and also the inspection right or, no, or, or lack of right and started to, to be debated. Then Carl was trying to propose you know, new contracts to deal with this. Uh, when there was already an existing contract. But what, what I thought was really interesting when I read through this correspondence, and I'll just make sure that I get the right reference here, um, it was the the message at Paris 31 and again on um, 
was it 31? I think it was 31 and 40, or at least it was the, the, the message on, on paragraph 40, where um, the buyer ultimately says, look, let's cut through all this. We will pay the 25000 to Canapa to get the gearbox, so you're not out of pocket, um, seller. We'll then get this gearbox over to Italy to get it authenticated, um, if it's the right gearbox, as in if this was the gearbox that was in this Ferrari, we will then pay the 475000 And my understanding of the contract was that was pretty much what was supposed to happen. Now, there was a debate about whether the inspection should be in Italy, who foots the bill for sending the car over there. And you know, the, the Lord Justice Mayles in this ultimately says, well, that wasn't necessary. The inspection could have happened in California. But that, that's a really a, a side point. The fundamental issue here is that there was a reasonable proposal made by one of the parties back in 2018 um, to resolve this in a sensible way. And it was dismissed out of hand. And that dismissal has had significant consequences for um, uh, for the seller in this case on costs and time and all the rest of it. Uh, but but it's a real lesson for me in in pre litigation correspondence um, to be guiding clients and advising clients. Well, look, there might be commercial considerations here. You might be annoyed at the deal you've struck. Um, yes, you, you, you're annoyed that you didn't know he was buying his principal, perhaps, subjectively, um, or that he was going to stand to make a big profit on the next sale of the gearbox or of the car. All of that, I, I know it might be annoying for you commercially, but that's not, that's not going to be the, the outcome of this from a legal perspective. And you, you can't help but think that at that point, um, someone had to be convincing Mr. Carl this is a good deal. Let's debate how the inspection happens, but accept this deal, move on and get on with life. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mr. Carl, I looked him up. You know, who I, I think at least he, he is a lawyer himself. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> clearly, well, uh, yeah, clear, okay. <laughs> he, he's, he's clearly in the right line of legal work if he's got 44 and a half million. Um, well, if he's got a, a, a Ferrari 250 GTO. Um, but yeah, I think I think he is a he's a Washington based based lawyer, and I and I'm not I'm not certain. I I, I just think that I that came across that when I was when I was looking into the background of this case, um, and if so, I all of the all of the procedural issues that you mention, all the difficulties that the 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 Court of Appeal and Lord Justice Mills in particular had with the way the case was pleaded, the, all the problems that they had with the way that new claims were brought, the procedural issues that all came about. It, it is surprising to me um, that someone with a legal background would take this case so far. Is it though? Is it though? Well, that's you know, the alternative. We all know that person. Exactly. Isn't it the old adage that, you know, lawyers just should not try their own cases? Mm. Um, and yeah. this is almost a, a, a sorry tale for that. Although um, he may have had quite a bit of money to play around with um, uh, from that $44 million that he made. So That's true. <laughs> that's true. I, 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 I'd hate to see how much of it he lost in, in costs. 
Yeah, a good chunk, a good chunk. He did, though, get back his 500K out of, out of this. That's so, true. Um, he, 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 I think there would have been some solace at the end of the decision. Um, so, okay, all right. Well, with all that, um, let's get into the, the legal issues. The first legal issue that was um, taken up and really seemed to be the main argument uh, in the uh, in the appeal was whether uh, GFL the um, the entity that went down on the sales contract as the buyer uh, whether they were in fact a party to the contract and this arose because the contract um, in describing the buyer uh, referred to GFL as being um, an agent for an undisclosed principal, but um, GFL went on to sign the contract um, without any caveat or without any reference to acting as an agent. Uh, and in addition to that, there was a, an addendum, the, the bill of sale, um, which was set out in uh, an unqualified way as well as to the buyer. So it didn't say on that bill of sale that the that the buyer was acting as agent for anyone else. And so there was this question, a uh, threshold question as to who who was the um, the buying party to this contract? Was it uh, GFL as agent for some other principal or was it GFL in their own right? And this was important because it turned out that there was not an, uh, an undisclosed principle. Um, GFL was in effect trading this deal. Um, they were buying it as principal and then selling for a profit onto the next buyer. Uh, and the argument that, um, that was had in the appeal was, you know, were they acting as agent um, or were they acting in their own right? And I think this is something, th- this point of law, is really is 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 of critical importance uh, in the world of international trade and particularly shipping because we see so many contracts where you have uh, kind of management companies um, signing in entering into charter parties or other agreements as agent for um, or as 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 principal on behalf of uh, you know special purpose vehicle companies um, or sometimes unidentified companies uh, who will later. Uh, be be known, you know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know, occasionally you'll have a charter party which is entered into in advance, where the the principal is not not disclosed or identified at that early stage, and is going to be later identified and and made known to the parties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I I just like how we started off on a a, a case um, regarding a Ferrari, and we end up pulling in shipping cases it's we can't get away from shipping law in one way or another <laughs> exactly you, you start you, you start with a ferrari gt250 and then you just move up and the glamour stakes to a bit <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly exactly and uh look the argument was that these shipping cases are irrelevant um why why, why do these these um, decisions relating to whether um a shipping charter party describes the owners as the owners or the owners as agents for someone else. Why, why does that have relevance here in this um, sale of goods uh, scenario for a um, for a car? Yeah, and 
I was pleased to see that that uh, Lord Justice Mills gave that gave that short shrift the there of general application these principles and the principle itself was one that I thought that I think bears repeating and it certainly clarified as a matter of law um, in this judgment which is that where you are where you sign a contract in in your own capacity or you don't put the signed as agent um, only you, that's that's the wording that we typically see you know signed as agent only and then the signature of the signing party. If you don't do that, then then you're broadly taken to have entered into the document in or entered into that contract in in the capacity as principal. Uh, even if at the top of the document it says, you know, say it's you and I entering into a contract, if it says Callum Chain as agent for a unidentified principal, if at the bottom of the contract I sign it off as Callum Chain without saying as agent or as, as agent only or as agent for an unidentified principal, then uh, the way that the law will treat that is that I've entered into that agreement as myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I hadn't appreciated how um, strong that law was because over years, decades now, I've been looking at these shipping emails, shipping contracts, and as agents is always invariably there in um, in a signature line or um, at the bottom of a contract. And I always thought of that pretty much as a belt and braces type approach. Um, Let's just make sure that it's clear that we're acting as agents only here. But it goes beyond that actually. Um, And as a matter of law, if, um, if the contract is signed off in an unqualified way, as you say, and does not include the word, the words as agents or something like that, then um, th- that signature un- in an unqualified way will have prevalence, will have priority over what else is said in the contract, assuming that the contract itself does not make it very clear that that this contract is um, is being entered into for a principal. So in, in this case, it wasn't very clear. There was a, a mere description in, uh, in, in the buyer, the name of the buyer at the top of the contract, that it's uh, acting as agent for an undisclosed principal. But the contract itself in the operative provisions didn't go on to explain what the agency uh, relationship was, didn't say anything about the principal. Um, and moreover, as I said before, the bill of sale that was an addendum to the contract it, it seemed to suggest the opposite, that the buyer was entering, entering into the contract in uh, their own name as principal. And so, so here there was inconsistency, again, bringing back a, a prior episode where we talked about inconsistency of terms. Um, but here, there was an inconsistency between the description of the buyer at the top of the contract and then this unqualified signature at the end. And the legal principle to take away from this is that the unqualified signature, where the person puts their name, where they're signing off, um, that has precedence, that, that, that outweighs the unclear references in the rest of the contract. Yeah, so it's a point it's a point to be very careful with when you're contracting as I, I had the same view that that you had which was that it was a belt and braces approach to you know say as agent only sometimes you even see it on stamps um when the people stamp a signature it will say as, as agents only and um 
I, I too thought that, that was mainly just belt and braces, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's of critical importance. If you're signing a document as an agent, then you have to mark beside your signature that you're signing in that capacity. Yeah, and the cases on this are, are old. We've got Cook and Wilson from 1856, Parker and Winlow, 1857, the Frost Express, okay, that's in the 90s, 1996. Um, but we're, we're talking about old, old principle here that I, I know I personally haven't had cause to look at in, in, in a while or look closely at this principle, but it's a long-standing principle and it's reaffirmed here as a long-standing principle and indeed almost so that Lord Justice Males felt that he couldn't go back and um, revisit it almost in a way. The, 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 this principle has been, how did, how did he put it? Um, here it is. If the contract contains no other means of resolving the inconsistency, English law has decided that the signature is the predominating consideration and has maintained that position over the last 150 years or so. It is too late to change that now without introducing considerable uncertainty into our law of contract. So, so as far as that issue is concerned, there we have it, I think. That's the, mm. um, that's, that's the clear ratio. So, so there was a contract. So, so we have a contract. Exactly. And, and the next question then, following the, um, following the determination that there was a contract in place, was the question of whether or not that contract incorporated the Sale of Goods Act under English law. And if a contract incorporates the Sale of Goods Act, that brings with it a number of implied terms, a number of uh, points regarding the passing of title, regarding, regarding the place of delivery. Um, it's, it was the same issue, in fact, that was critical to the OW Bunkers case in the Res Cogitans. That was all about whether or not the sale of Goods Act was incorporated into the contract because of the implied terms that went along with the sale of Goods Act. Um, so it's a question that comes up not infrequently on the sale of goods cases, um, and in each case, it's relatively fact. Uh, in re- it's a relatively fact-intense um, determination, but it is something to be aware of um, when you're entering into a contract for the sale of goods. Understanding the position with respect to the Sale of Goods Act and whether those terms, the terms that are in- incorporated by that act, also form a part of your contract is is important. Yes, yes, and and the way that the court went about answering the various issues before it um, by reference to the Sale of Goods Act is instructive. And it's instructive in, in the sense of how to approach these cases from a, from a practitioner's perspective. As we as lawyers, how should we um, advise our clients on these issues? How should we structure our claims or our defences? How to apply the analysis to a sale of goods? And once um, Lord Justice Males took that view of the court here, um, it, was a, it was actually a, a three-justice decision with the other two justices uh, concurring. Um, it, when um, the court took the view that the Sale of Goods Act applied, it then went on and assessed all of the ancillary questions by reference first to what does the Sale of Goods Act say? Yeah. 
and perhaps we move uh, so the, the the question of whether or not the sale of goods act applies absent anything else in the contract is simply looking at whether or not it's, it satisfies the definition of section uh, 2 subsection 1 of the sale of goods act itself which is that a contract of uh, sale of goods is a contract by which the seller transfers or agrees to transfer the property in the goods to the buyer for a money consideration called the price um, so the the in terms of a kind of legal analysis which is which is broader than just this decision there's not a huge amount to discuss there because each in each case that's going to turn very much on its facts but if you're if if the contract that you're entering into satisfies that definition then it's likely that other parts of the contract will end up being determined on the basis of sale of goods act questions yeah and here the, they were tr- the seller was trying to argue that the $500,000 kicker uh, for getting the gearbox, that was more akin to a services type contract rather than a a sale of the car and the gearbox. And as you say, um, the court gave that quite short shrift um, and found that no, this was a sale of the Ferrari um, and its gearbox, albeit separated from the Ferrari, uh, and the consideration for that was the $44 million um, and that there was just a mechanism for an additional payment if the gearbox was retrieved. And I think there's an important point in that, in the way that the judge um, or the, the Lord Justices went about this decision, which was that they, they effectively considered the gearbox part of the property that was the subject of the sale. They, the, the seller had title to the car and gearbox, and even though the two had been separated, the seller was still capable of transferring title to the entirety of the of the car, including its gearbox, um, under the sale un, under the contract of sale, um, and did so. And that that bleeds through into a number of the different issues that were determined. Yeah, and that that well, the the, the threshold question there, I think, was whether um, property passed in what well, clearly passed in the Ferrari, but whether it also passed in the gearbox, even though the gearbox uh, was not in the possession of the seller. And so going back to um, what I said earlier about the approach to take here, um, the, the court then, as the first thing to do in assessing that question, that passing of property, went to section 17 of the Sale of Goods Act, um, and I won't read it all out here, but that um, section uh, goes to ascertaining what the party's intention was, um, and you know where it ha- has some rules for um, determining that, uh, and and what to do where there's no um, intention expressed. And in this case, uh, there was no doubt that. Um, the intention was to pass property in the GTO, in the Ferrari, on completion. And there was an express clause in the contract that said as much. And the court then went on to say, well, there's no reason to suppose that the parties had a different intention with regard to the gearbox. And the the clause that... um, the the seller referred to in having to uh, retaining a right for the seller to bring proceedings against the third party to retrieve the gearbox didn't 
affect that fundamental intention. And to the contrary, there are other clauses in the contract that actually supported um, that the intention of the parties was for the gearbox uh, to pass, property in the gearbox to pass um, on completion as well. Yeah, exactly. And the, the kind of the key point of general application there, as you say, is is that Section 17 of the Sale of Goods Act simply says the court will look at the intention of the parties. The, the court will, will, unless it's clear from the contract, the court will look at the contract and ascertain where the um, at what time, sorry, the the title was the the property was entitled to pass between the parties. Um, so the next question then was where where was the um, where where was the delivery going to take place? And again, um, as was the, was the case with the question on title, the first the first place to turn to is the Sale of Goods Act, and Section twenty nine deals with the place of delivery. Uh, subsection one effectively says. The place of delivery will be the place where the contract says that it will be delivered. And uh, subsection 2 says that it's the seller's place of business. So the court had to determine whether or not the contract stipulated the place of delivery of the gearbox. That was the inquiry for the court, essentially. Um, and they looked at the wording of the contract that said that the gearbox would be turned over to the seller. And they effectively said that turned over meant... It, it's kind of yours where is basically once we find it we we just turn it over to you yeah. it's up to you to deal with it from there exactly that, that, that it's it's available for collection wherever it may be um, and and that makes sense I think that is the natural um, understanding of turn the gearbox over to to the buyer um, so yeah, that was a relatively um, short point. There was also this this point about um, examination of the gearbox. It was a separate question dealt with separately. Again, uh, the uh, the court first looked at what the Sale of Goods Act says. In this um, instance, that was Section thirty four one of the Act, um, and th- this is worth reading out. I think. Um, because it's a it's a point that might not be um, obvious to to many of our uh, listeners that so section thirty four one of the Sale of Goods Act provides that unless otherwise agreed, when the seller tenders delivery of the goods to the buyer, he slash should be she is bound on request to afford the buyer a reasonable opportunity of examining the goods for the purpose of ascertaining whether they are in conformity with the contract. And then it goes on to deal with a a sale by sample. But it's this concept that um, there's an obligation bound on request to afford the buyer. So the seller must give the buyer a reasonable opportunity of examining the goods. And this this goes back to that... um, that message that I, I referred to at the opening, Callum, where um, there was this, I thought, reasonable offer by the buyer to say, okay, um, we'll make sure that the 25000 is paid through to the person that you've got this gearbox from. We will pay you the, the, um, the 475000 remaining as long as we confirm that um, that these goods are the right goods. Now, 
the buyer said that happened has to happen in Ferrari, the, the Ferrari factory in Italy, meaning that the gearbox had to come from California, that was not necessarily reasonable. But the, the opportunity to inspect um, was a right of the buyer, and indeed the seller was obliged to give um, the, the buyer that right under, uh, under this section of the Act. Yeah, exactly. And the, they, as, as you mentioned at the start, the, the court did find that the, the right of reasonable inspection did not extend to a, uh, an obligation on the seller to send the gearbox to Ferrari in Italy from California for inspection. Uh, the Court of Appeal found that someone from Ferrari could have been flown out to the gearbox, for example. Uh, the inspection could have taken place in California. But it does go to the reasonableness of this um, offer that was made. Effectively, you know, nearly, bar a few points, um, like the one I've just mentioned, this offer pretty much mirrored where the court went with their decision. Quite, quite. And it, it, it kind of moves on to what I thought was another interesting point of general application, which was the, um, the seller argued, one of the seller's arguments was that that offer was a repudiation of the contract. And repudiation, as a, as, a, as a contractual term or as a piece of legal jargon, is effectively where you've breached the contract in such a significant way that the contract, um, that, that the other party, the innocent party, has a right to terminate the contract. And that requires a pretty significant breach. But one of the ways that you can repudiate is by it's by effectively communicating to the, to the other side that you have no intention of being bound by the terms of the agreement. And uh, for example, in, the, in, a, uh, in a charter party context, you might have somebody saying, I, I'm never going to pay you higher again. I consider that this contract is at an end. And that could well be a anticipatory repudiatory breach, um, which is the legal jargon for the one party saying to the other that they've got no intention of being bound by this contract going forward. And I think that was the argument that the seller was trying to make here. They, they were trying to say the conditions that you're putting on this sale evidence that you have no intention of being bound by the terms of the agreement that we've signed up to because they're so far removed from the terms of the agreement that we've signed up to. And, and the court just said that wasn't the case. They looked, looked, at, looked right. at the correspondence, um, looked at the, the 20, 21 February 2018 message that I've referred to already and said, well, save for the point about where the inspection takes place, the buyer's position was both reasonable and also in accordance with the contract. It, 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 there's in no way that that message could be deemed to be a repudiation of the contract because they were asking for the inspection to take place in Italy. Um, and there could have been some toing and froing over that, but it, it doesn't even get close to rising to a repudiatory type breach. And what I thought was was also interesting in in this judgment, um, and correct, was that the, the uh, Lord Justice Males contextualised this dispute in the context of the entire yes, contract. Yes. He, he wasn't looking at the you know the five hundred thousand dollars for the engine for, for the gearbox. He said this is a forty four point five million dollar sale, and you're saying that there's a repudiation on the place of testing of a component which is worth zero point five million dollars. 
And in the context of the contract as a whole, which is what you should be looking at when you're considering repudiation, this is insignificant. Not, not to mention, I, sorry, Callum, but not to mention that um, $44 million was paid, the GTO was handed over, <laughs> and well, exactly. you know, the, most of the contract was performed. Yeah, and I think that's really, that's, that's really quite instructive. Again, it's, it's, it's maybe a practitioner's point. Um, when you're advising on these questions of repudiation and renunciation uh, or advising on a right to terminate, then stepping back and seeing the contract as broadly as possible and seeing whether the issue, which no doubt your client is extremely hot on in the present moment and extremely focused on in the present moment, whether that issue is of fundamental importance to the entire contract is a is an, is, is an instructive exercise. Yeah, super important. Really important to do that. Uh, and, and, and have that distance as well, you know, where we all, and I know you're like this, I'm like this, we fought our, fight our client's corner um, vigorously and, um, you know, as passionately as we can within reason. Um, but you, you still need to maintain that professional distance so that you can... Understand your client's commercial objectives, understand their instructions, where they're coming from, but then be able to explain, um, well, as a matter of law, this is where we can take the, those arguments. This is how far we can take them. This is the, the, the outer perimeter of what we can do with that type of argument. And I'm not saying that wasn't done here. We, we have no idea what, what the position was between um, the the solicitors and, and the clients and indeed at one point um, leading counsel uh, suggested that you know he should fall on his sword on some of the arguments and uh, the Lord Justice Mayles said well I'm not so sure I believe that or, or words to that effect so I didn't get the feeling that Lord Justice Mayles particularly liked um, the no, no, I think that comes through. <laughs> Although I, I, I think it's right for us to note uh, the five hundred thousand um, dollars and what happened. Yes. What happened with that? That wasn't a sale right. of goods point. That was more a construction point. Yeah, and it, it, this this was essentially the the disputes between the parties had got so heated and had got so blown out of proportion that despite the fact they'd both originally agreed that finding and turning over the gearbox, the original gearbox, would entitle the buyer, sorry, the seller, to an additional uh, half a million dollars from the buyer, by the point of this reaching the courts, such was the level of acrimony that the, um, that the, the buyer had essentially said, well, I'm not going to pay you the extra 0.5 million. I, my, my contractual, the, the contract that we entered into does not actually require me on its construction to pay you that additional sum, which the which the first instance court agreed with. Yeah, and I, I was amazed by that. So that was the argument. There was that GFL, the buyer, was disputing the entitlement to the five hundred thousand on the basis that that was only payable if the gearbox was recovered from somebody other than Canapa, as I understand yeah. the argument. And the contract was not that well written for well, that's on true. this point. That's true. Yeah, I'll give you that. And in that respect, the, the court went through 
the relevant contractual provisions um, and uh, identified that um, uh, some of the clause, clauses they deal with um, the incurring of legal costs and compensation related to that. And then subsequent clauses deal with the alloc- allocation of compensation or damages recovered from any third party. And then finally, there was another provision that dealt with remuneration from um, the buyer to the seller for services uh, in in locating and then securing the possession of the gearbox. Um, But that, that didn't really distinguish between whether the gearbox was recovered from Canapa or whether it was recovered from a third party and they applied really equally in either case. And if you think about this from a commercial perspective, as, as the court noted, there's no real commercial sense in saying that Mr. Carl, the seller, should be incentivized to go and recover the gearbox from third parties. And if um, he's successful in recovering from third parties other than Canapa, he gets $500,000. But if he uh, if he rec- if he recovers the gearbox from Canapa, that he doesn't get the five hundred thousand. That that incentive to incentivize one and not the other just doesn't make any commercial sense. And, yeah. And so the court the court found that that's just not the construction of of these series of clauses. And there's a there's a similarity in this case to the. Uh, Septo case that was also Lord Justice Mails that we looked at in a previous episode, oh, that's right. um, yeah. which was the one about the recap, where in a, he he used a similar kind of school of contractual interpretation, if you like, where the contractual interpretation question was framed relatively literally, and he looked at the you know the objective intention of the parties. Um, in you know following the guidance from the Supreme Court in cases like Arnold and Britain, um, which is which maybe tends towards a more kind of literal reading of the contracts, but there's certainly a, a kind of commercial interpretation which is driving some of the decisions, or it's certainly the, this this decision in the Septo case, um, and I think it's done quite well. I think that it's there there is sense where a contract is is being kind of pulled apart. By the uh, by, the courts, for the court to take a view on the commercial intention, um, and to and to have that as a factor in there in in the way that they read the contract. Otherwise, we can have come up with some fairly bizarre um, judgments. And the parties, when they sit down to prepare contracts, typically aren't considering all the things that could go wrong. Um, and things go wrong that are outside of the contemplation of the parties and the wording taking in isolation of a few different clauses can often lead to a result where, you know, the parties just weren't considering the, being in that situation ever. It's a good observation, Callum. Uh, and I, I'm conscious of time for this particular episode, uh, but we could definitely get into, and maybe we should in a, in a subsequent episode, looking at... Um, uh, the, the various approaches of the courts, whether there's a, a tendency towards a more literal interpretation of contracts or whether there's a more purposive um, commercial type view that comes through in these decisions, and indeed whether certain um, justices have uh, uh, um, their own views on this. And It will be interesting, I think, 
it'll be interesting over time as we as we continue these to see if we if, if there are repeat um, people people who come up whether you start to get a flavour of, of certain justices uh, style if you like I had one other point that I wanted to make on this or or maybe actually two points um, if I may just to deal with the list of issues point very briefly and then mediation and if, if you would like to wrap up on costs and um, and sign us out, that would that would be great, Callum. I think if we could probably do this in relatively short order. On the list of issues, I thought again, practitioners note here, um, the the court expressly noted that um, in this case there was a list of twenty five odd issues, which was in effect a rehash of the pleadings, um, and that's not the point of a list of issues. A list of issues is supposed to distill the principle. Um, the, the principal issues of fact and law arising in their case emphasise the word principle. Um, and I think that's important for us all to, to know as practitioners um, in, in, in drafting lists of issues for commercial court cases. The other point is mediation. Um, mediation does have a place in English and US legal practice. Um, it's actively encouraged by the courts. Some cases um, uh, are not um, prime for mediation. Most should should at least be considered for mediation. This is a classic case where you can just see that had a mediator sat the parties down um, around a table and said, look, we are actually arguing here about whether an inspection takes place and where it takes place you've got potentially million pounds worth of costs in front of you taking this all the way up to the Court of Appeal on these points. Of course, they wouldn't have known that when they set out, but you know, you've, you've got at least significant costs ahead of you. Let's work out some regime to deal with this inspection, where it happens and, and make it reasonable. Had that happened at an early stage, then um, significant costs could have been avoided. Moreover, in this particular case, when... Lord Justice Mayles um, heard the permission application and gave permission um, for the hearing. I suspect what happened was he saw that there was an issue over the 500,000 and that that should have been awarded. Um, And in granting permission, basically said to the parties that that's going to be the outcome, go off and mediate. And and the appellant didn't um, take heed of that suggestion and was then ultimately punished on costs, which is your segue into just wrapping up what happened on costs. Yeah, so so there's a, there is a uh, a procedure under in in the courts, um, which is often people often seek to mirror the, this procedure in arbitration. There there are various reasons why it doesn't mirror exactly, but the principle stands. Uh, well, the principle is good, which is that if you make an offer, in uh, and and the terms of your offer. Uh, would give the uh, your opposing party a better result than what they ultimately obtained by going all the way to a decision, then when it comes to a cost award, you can turn around to the judge and say, hey, look, we actually made them an offer and they've gone all the way to uh, a judgment and the judgment is worse than the offer that we made them. Um, and if you, if you make one of those offers early, it's called a Part 36 offer, then there are a number of cost penalties um, on the uh, on the party that refused to accept the offer, so 
you know one situation where you can make these kind of offers is if you are a um, if you're a defendant to a claim, then you can then even if you think that you might be liable in some way for the claim, but not for the entirety of the claim, then you can make an offer for part of the claim. Um, and if at the end of the day the claimant gets awarded part of the um, gets gets awarded a part, a part judgment um, against you as as the defendant, then your part thirty six offer, uh, this offer that you've made can then be revealed to the court and can essentially flip the uh, the position on costs where normally the claimant would be the successful party in that situation but in fact you would then be considered the party who um who who was successful for the for the purposes of the costs award um, and that was exactly what happened here there was a little bit of a discrepancy over things like interest but uh, fundamentally because of the offer that was made early on in proceedings where the buyer had said, "I'm going to pay you the five hundred thousand. I'm going to pay you to send the uh, to send the gearbox across." Um, because because that offer wasn't wasn't beaten, it was basically mirrored what the what the um, court of appeal ultimately found. The uh, the there was a, a punitive cost award um, made against uh, this against the seller. Um, so it's a it's another it's another practice point and a point for clients to be aware of is that if you're there's there's a real benefit there can be a real cost benefit to making an early assessment offer. Yeah, uh, well said. Um, it's it's a really important point where ultimately what happened on this appeal was the appellant got um, the five hundred thousand odd, um, but got punished on cost because of the procedural um, posturing that they'd taken throughout both sets of proceedings. And so I look, I think it's a good good way to, to sign this off, Callum. Thank you for um, for getting to the end of this podcast. This has been our longest, I think, comfortably. I, I almost thought it would be because there's just so much in it. It's a really, <laughs> so really... So much to deal with. Yeah, really interesting case. Um, I, I, I've enjoyed it. Um, I hope you have as well um, to all our listeners. It's always a pleasure talking about these cases with you, Callum. And uh, thank you again to, um, to Rachel for uh, helping put together these um, podcasts on the back end. Thank you all. Until next time, take care. Perfect. That's the checkered flag.